Hey guys, and welcome to Legendary Africa, your African myths and legends podcast. Today on the show, we have a special guest interview with Dr. Richard Sugg. Dr. Sugg is the author of 11 books, including A Century of Supernatural Stories, A Singing Mouse at Buckingham Palace, Fairies, A Dangerous History, The Real Vampires, and Our Week with the Juffle Hunters. He is currently completing Talking Dirty, The History of Disgust, from Henry VIII to Donald Trump. You can find Dr. Sugg on Twitter at Dr. Sugg and on his personal website, drrichardsugg.com. Well, that's all for me, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. I'm delighted to welcome on to Legendary Africa, Dr. Richard Sugg, to talk about his book, Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, the history of corpse medicine from the Middle Ages to the Falun Gong. Dr. Sugg, welcome and thank you for joining us. Many thanks for, uh, for the invitation. It's great to talk. Thank you. So um, when I read the synopsis of your book, I was instantly fascinated. I mean, I've, I haven't heard of this really happening so much before. How did you become interested and when did you become interested in corpse medicine? Like maybe just walk me through that process. Yeah, of course. Thanks. So I was researching another book um, on anatomy in the time of um, Shakespeare and John Donne. And this subject crept in sideways. Often if you do a good book, I think you get another one kind of comes into view and so I had this subject on the radar from about 2005 I suppose really and um, as time went by I kept realizing there was more and more and more it went on much later than you'd thought people kind of wanted to think it was medieval but it was nothing of the sort it was running much more heavily in the 17th century in the kind of modern time of the scientific revolution and uh, yeah it was a great old student of mine particularly a guy called Daniel Hartley who become a lecturer and an author himself now who, who said to me this is huge isn't it this is actually huge it's the um myth of kind of renaissance and scientific civilization that was uh extant for the 16th and 17th and part of the 18th centuries uh was radically undercut by the fact that these cannibals they kept finding or imagining in the new world particularly were amateurs by comparison with the european priests monarchs scientists noblemen and women who were practicing systematic cannibalism for well over 300 years on a kind of industrial scale so with your book what exactly are the like the main points or you know that you want readers to take away from the book yeah it's a good question i think three if i had to choose particularly uh one is that each era is rather good in fact eerily good at kind of normalizing its own ordinary madness if you like um so climate change might be one for us, but the kind of incredible institutional racism that's been seen recently in Britain and in America uh, is, is obviously another. Uh, the fact that these big statues, these memorials, these celebrations of slave traders can stand up there in plain sight until people actually have the nerve to pull one down and then it all comes down like dominoes. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, they were very good, you know, at kind of whitewashing, normalizing the ordinary madness of the fact that the cannibals in Canada and Brazil, etc., were the scum of the earth. If you read accounts from the 
period and yet there they were doing this um, <laughs> over and over again um, uh, on an industrial scale. The second is the fact that history can be so whitewashed and again of course this counts for the history of imperialism, colonialism, slavery and uh, it, it's, it's whitewashed very very successfully and this was done with medicinal cannibalism that well into well well into the late 20th early 21st century serious medical historians were ignoring this uh telling lies about it i'm afraid in some cases actually mm -hmm. that it had ended kind of in the 16th century nothing of the sort and then actually when i was publishing the first paper on this before the book uh, i got very friendly responses but also a response suggesting uh, that I should cut the word cannibalism from the title <laughs> because it was this word that, that meant that the keyword went through the internet databases and got me responses from popular magazines and all sorts of uh, exposure. So I'm very glad I didn't, but, um, but that was obviously bothering somebody in the early 21st century in the sphere of serious history. The third point, I think, uh, which is a big one for us still, is the fact that for much of history, if not perhaps all of it, ordinary people have been powerfully alienated from medicine. And this has often taken mythic forms that in uh, 18th century France, people believed that the monarchs were stealing their children to murder them, to bathe in their blood for leprosy. This oh. almost certainly wasn't true. And in fact, serious sociologists have argued it's not true that North American doctors, merchants are stealing Central American children for organ transplants and so forth. But the belief is certainly incredibly powerful uh, in those areas. I think even now, certainly 15 years ago, uh, to the extent of an American tourist could be in danger of their life for taking a picture of children. Uh, no children were sent to school for days in these areas in Guatemala and so on uh, when this belief came about. And behind that kind of it's very difficult to disentangle what's true and what's not true because we know that people were murdered for anatomy in Britain in the uh, 19th century. Uh, but whether it's actually just mythic purely or not, there's an important truth under it, which is that there is nothing that the powerful will not do to us. And this includes making us to medicine. That means something. Even when the actual precise claims are not true, it means something that people feel that way about people who have oppressed them and let them starve and turn them out of their homes and so on. Yeah, oh, brilliant. Um, actually, that, that makes me want to ask, so was the process of whitewashing, did that cause like this kind of evidence of cannibalism and corpse medicine in Britain to be hidden or did people just simply ignore that? No, it very much did cause it to disappear almost for a long time. When I was researching the book, there was one other book coming out from America, which was a useful book, slightly different focus. And there were old books from the early 20th century that gave you a wealth of information about the secondary books. And then once you looked at the primary sources, it was absolutely everywhere. It's in Shakespeare. It's in John Donne. It's in the works of Robert Boyle, the father of chemistry. Uh, you, you name it. It's it's all over the place. You, you you could kind of pick it up by accident looking for something else. So, yeah, they've done a pretty good job and told very specific lies. And the favourite, perhaps, is um, about Charles II. So Charles II made his own corpse medicine over and over again in his own laboratory. He made a medicine from powder of human skull distilled which came to be known as the king's drops 
partly through snobbery, I think, because it was called the King's Drops, associated with Charles. It became very popular amongst the elites. Uh, it was used to treat him on his deathbed. He reached for it when he first fell ill, a few days before he actually died. Uh, it treated Queen Mary II in the 1690s. And yeah, it was circulating among bishops, European aristocracy, and so forth. It was in demand. But by the time you get to uh, the 20th century, quite useful histories of medicine are telling you that Charles was forcibly given all sorts of rubbish on his deathbed by his murdering physicians. And amongst these cures was the king's drops. And he, he was supposed to have paid £6,000 in that day's valuation for the recipe for the king's drops. So it's a bit like Edward Jenner being forcibly vaccinated against the <laughs> Wow, that's yo, that that's ridiculous. So so you're saying powdered rain. I see in your synopsis you also you mentioned some really interesting stuff. The magical powers of candles made from human fat or the blood uh, blood drinking. So I'm sure you've probably gotten this question loads of times, but were any of these methods actually effective? It's a good question though. I've been asked it and it's a good question. Um yes, yeah, so couple two or three examples i spoke to a forensic pathologist in durham when he used to work there and he was egyptian originally and so when he was younger his mother used what would have been called sort of loosely folk medicines his brother cut his head quite badly the mother put powdered coffee on it and this sorted the problem out so he explained to me any powder stimulates the coagulation mechanism and this rang bells because in the 17th century, they're putting cobwebs, they're putting powdered moss of the human skull, powdered human blood on wounds. Hey, presto, you take your powder, you choose what you like. But of course, they would have thought it worked for different reasons. Another interesting one was, in fact, the King's Drops. And this was used as an antidepressant by one uh, female aristocrat at the time. And it was given to various people in wine by Charles II's private secretary. He was a strange character called Chiffinch, who was a very close right-hand man. Uh, reminds me of somebody else in British politics. And I can't quite think of their name, but uh, somebody quite controversial in Downing Street. Anyway, this kind of right-hand man, uh, man of all works, would drug uh, people to get their secrets out of them. So he'd give them a lot of wine, but he found if you put the king's drops in the wine, they would get even more drunk and talkative. And a lawyer called Roger North remembers having this put in his wine and he was utterly blind drunk. He fell down on the bush in Windsor Park uh, one day and he couldn't remember anything. His brother was making things up about the state they found him in and he couldn't contradict them because he was oblivious. So yeah, something was going on. They had other ingredients, of course, in these medicines. So you've got heart's horn, uh, which is an ingredient in smelling salts uh, that might have had certain effects uh on on patients obviously what else have we got um human fat is a tricky one because this uh this really was used and it persisted even as they turned against corpse medicine the elite turned against it in the mid 18th century human fat was still in pretty heavy demand it was used for gout for rheumatism you can kind of see that because you rub something lubricating on the body, whatever it is, it, it might work. But there do seem perhaps to have been chemical properties in human fat. It was used in the New World by Spanish soldiers there against various wounds and sores. And it was apparently used so extensively that an extraordinary myth uh, was formed amidst the um, people of uh, Central and South America. And this was the myth of a vampire which steals your fat. This persists, I'm told, today 
in Bolivia, in Peru, in the mountainous areas, that the pistaco, as they know it, uh, will kill you magically by stealing your fat. Uh, it's in the sense that the fat is life for these people, I suppose, not the blood. So, yeah, fat was used successfully by executioners as healers who had access to all the body parts. And it does seem to have saved people's limbs, their wounds from gangrene, all sorts. Um, that that might have worked. Yeah, there was there was some wisdom sideways in these things. That's incredible. Um, I mean, I can only assume that this kind of stuff doesn't really happen anymore. Are there places in the world where we still use this kind of corpse medicine? I don't know of any, but they are much more recent than than people would think. Um, so, yeah, the candles made of human fat, for example, there were murders. There were murders all across Europe, uh, in Russia, in Germany, in the 19th century, probably just about into the 20th century, uh, to get fat to make these candles, which were magical things. They were they were called thieves' candles because it was believed if you had such a candle, any house you entered, all the inhabitants would be either paralysed or forced to sleep. They couldn't wake up. So whichever was the case, you could do your thieving, burgling uh, with impunity. So, yeah, thieves' candles. Um, skull was a big medicine well into the late 19th, again, probably the early 20th century in Britain, particularly Scotland. People would... Uh, go a long way to drink water from the skull of a suicide, uh, particularly against epilepsy, which was a very taboo disease at that time. And um, yeah, if you went to the right place, uh, you could find corpse medicine happening in plain sight in Sweden, uh, in Austria, Germany, Denmark. People were continually drinking blood, fresh blood at beheadings. And it always really stuck with me when uh, newspapers were talking about the savage rights of Dahomey, uh, it's now Benin, I think, in Africa, where they had, it seems to be genuine that they had rituals of what were loosely called sac sacrifice, uh, and blood was drunk. But while they were talking furiously about this supposedly primitive custom, in Sweden, uh, if you had a beheading, when they were, they were very rare, so when they happened, people camped out in huge crowds the night before, uh, 500 people perhaps to to get the blood at the execution but they weren't actually allowed to do it in Germany and Denmark you were it was all organized uh, in Sweden you weren't so the police the soldiers were in front of the scaffold keeping back this crowd they were pouring injuries and people scrummed forward for the blood and on one occasion in I think it was 1866 you had these people thwarted of the desire to get the blood um, the soldiers swept a load of earth onto the blood as it fell and these people threw themselves on their knees and crushed blood-soaked earth into their mouths who who were the savages um in this period of enlightenment europe yeah that's that's certainly very different to i think many people's perception of the western world so yeah that's very important um there's one thing in your books and office that i'd like to just maybe mention if if you can yeah of um, course you talk about corpses, medicine's ultimate power being the human soul. How does that work? How is that connected? Yeah, this is a really central question. Thanks. So if I go back of that a little bit, the big question in the early 17th century was not should you eat people for medicine, but what sort of person should you eat? So it 
originated with um, Egyptian mummies, sort of very dead bodies, if you like, you know, crumbled, uh, friable, not very chewy, visceral, bloody. Uh, but as time went on, the Paracelsians, followers of a big medical iconoclast uh, called Paracelsus, who died in about 1541, these people became very influential in Europe. And they argued that, no, this was the sort of body you wanted. You wanted a young man, red-haired, about 24 years of age, dead of a violent death, and preferably killed by suffocation or by hanging or drowning, but not by a wounding, not by bleeding. So you would take this corpse, uh, you would uh, cure it pretty much, and it was described after these artful curing processes um, as resembling smoke-cured meat without any stench, and you might then uh, crumble some flesh, you might make an actual distillation. So watch out if you were offered in plague-struck London, if you're offered a nice-looking red tincture, because it might well have come from the body of this red-haired young man. But yeah, there was a certain logic, in fact, quite precise logic, behind the seemingly bizarre details of this recipe. And the logic was this. This young man had died of violence, not of illness. He had died young. He had a certain type of blood um, and of temperament because of his hair and his skin. So basically, he had the most effective uh, life force in him, if you like. And uh, another book that I hope to publish in an affordable edition soon is called The Smoke of the Soul. It's been out for a while, but very expensive. And The Smoke of the Soul is about um, something that was pretty much as central and as powerful as important to Shakespeare or Milton or Robert Boyle as DNA now is to us. And this was what they called the spirits. So we still talk about being in low spirits, high spirits, your spirits are damned. But what they meant very precisely was that the blood, when it heated to a kind of very fine vapour, very active, very quick, this was the spirits. And the spirits actually joined the soul to the body. So our idea of the soul being very much beyond the body, immaterial, is a quite a new one. They believe the soul was in the body, was it in the head, was it in the heart, was it in the stomach, but it was definitely in some sense in the blood and it flitted around the blood. It was essential to do all these things that um, biochemistry and electricity would, would later do in the body. So you couldn't really do without this, but it also gave you the belief that you could effectively swallow the power of the human soul. So um, hot blood from a freshly beheaded corpse or um, material from a corpse that had only been dead about three days. And Paracelsus said very tellingly, uh, if any physician knew the worth of a body like that, it would never be left on the gibbet, because of course they were displayed as a deterrent, for longer than three days. And this struck bells with me when I thought, hang on, you went to... Um, areas like Fiji, where if you could get the corpse of your enemy and eat it within four days, you could consume their power. You could effectively consume their soul. So again, kind of eerie parallel between the savages, as it were, of Fiji and the civilized uh, Europeans. Both of them believed that you could swallow the soul. And the belief was founded on a kind of biochemical reality that you know, depending on the climate and the time of year and so forth and the body, a body doesn't look or smell perhaps very dead for three or four days. And then it does. And if you go back to the New Testament, the biggest miracle in the New Testament is not the raising of Christ. It's the raising of Lazarus, because as Martha says very explicitly to Christ uh, when he proposes raising Lazarus, 
but Lord, he has been dead four days and he stinks. Uh, so there you have it. It's one thing to raise Christ, who was slightly dead. It's another thing to raise Lazarus, who was very dead and he smelled like it. And this persisted right through uh, the Renaissance period and 17th century for many, especially in Northern Europe. There was a powerful belief that you could be alive, you could be dead or you could be slightly dead. And a corpse was slightly dead for three, 40 days, up to a year when stages. But this was very much, you know, the roots of vampire terrors in vampire country, um, Romania and Greece and much of Europe. People believe that a corpse was very dangerous for three days when it was like to be in your house waiting for its burial. So, yes, you could swallow the powers of the soul, the powers of the body and soul fused. And people actually, medics of the time, very serious ones, talked about fear and hence the violent death and so forth, actually conditioning the spirits of the soul into the most potent form uh, you could hope for. So the kind of eerie um, manipulation of the body of your medical subject to to get this scientifically effective uh, soul for you to swallow. Oh wow! So then, did the person that they say that the corpse that they were to take blood from, did it at all matter as to what the person did? So that so you know the connection that sometimes people make between the deeds that the person did and how pure their soul is, or something like that. Did that yeah. matter to them? It's a very good question, but to for all the evidence we have, it, it mattered not at all. All that mattered was the biochemical, as we now call it. Um, physical status of the body, young, dead of a violent death. Um, no, the you know the irony is that these people were more than likely to be criminals. Uh, they might have committed pretty minor crimes by our standards, like stealing uh, because they were hungry or a coat because they were cold. But but yeah, they were they they were criminals and tabooed as such. Um, and they were likely to be men. And this is this is important also because women weren't executed very much partly because they were so often pregnant and they would not execute a, a pregnant woman. Uh, but they seem to also want uh, the body or the blood of a man, because I'm afraid to say in a period as sexist as the Renaissance was, this was a time when serious clergymen would doubt that women had souls at all. There was a general belief, quite certainly, that women's souls were less powerful than men's. Mm. Um, there was a belief in the heat of the body and men were hotter uh, than women and women were cooler the soul was less useful less effective uh, but sins didn't seem to bother them because if uh, they had it would be very difficult to to get many of these bodies they uh, they were bothered about the conditioning of of the blood and the spirits and there is a a medical phenomenon which might have played a part here that when somebody dies of extreme trauma violence fear it, it triggers an overproduction of a chemical called fibrinolazine and this uh, has an anticoagulant effect so that blood can be transfused uh, a surprisingly long time after that person's died and they may have noticed this in a period where they're doing autopsies where they're doing anatomies anatomized criminal specimens for medical research so yeah there's a certain kind of uh you know, transhistorical reality crossing over there and was corpse medicine uh, restricted to adults? Like nothing happened with children's uh, bodies? Do you mean did they give it to children or use children? 
No, I mean, did they use children at all? Or was that... They, they apparently did to some degree, although this is where you get into sort of blurred territory so that I talk about medicinal cannibalism, which doesn't always mean corpse medicine. So we have... Um, uh, Marsilio Ficino in the 16th century, a huge intellectual authority recommending that the elderly should drink blood from the arm of a young man to restore themselves. Uh, people would probably have happily given their blood like this for money. They were letting blood anyway as a medical uh, kind of routine. Uh, people gave uh, hair, um, women's milk was used for medicine and sweats could be used. Uh, semen menstrual blood, placenta, um, there were pretty much anything that was dispensable from a live body could be used for medicine. And another big one was urine. Uh, if a, um, a surgeon came upon you with a bad wound uh, in the battlefield or after a duel between men, arguments between men were surprisingly frequent and they carried knives and swords, you would you would have the luck to have the uh, physician surgeon urinate on you immediately or get other people to do so uh, and this was the standard practice from many serious surgeons partly because uh, they didn't really understand about boiling water and disinfecting instruments and urine actually was probably the cleanest thing you had uh, it's sterile when it leaves the body so urine was used but it was also used uh, as a medicine in non-emergencies Thomas Willis, who was the richest doctor in England uh, in the time of Milton, recommended people to drink their own urine for various uh, problems. It was used by women uh, as a kind of face cream, and apparently it, it's still in some chemical form in face creams. It, it works pretty well. And, yeah, children. Uh, they would want the urine of young children who drank very little wine uh, for various purposes in this period. So... Uh, yes, the, the idea perhaps that um, particular sort of power or purity of a youthful body uh, was was good for you. Uh, you, you did get uh, uses of um, children or youths at this at this time. It wasn't a huge amount, but, but they did exist. Okay. And then um, in terms of Britain and the US, were there varying like differences between how they treated corpse medicine or more or less the same? Yeah, so obviously the biggest irony here is that they were finding cannibals um, on uh, the new continents, uh, particularly from kind of Central America downwards, but also in Canada, actually, what was now Canada. And these were genuine cannibal tribes, and anthropology has examined them. And what, what tended not to get across was that a lot of the cannibalism, if not most of it, was consensual it was within the tribe and it was purely a funeral rite. it was very sober it was very dutiful it was very uh, religious essentially and a lot of particular rituals were important to it there was no sense of appetite or greed or kind of primitive hunger for flesh uh, it was a duty that you did and sometimes the flesh was so putrid that you would vomit this back up but the the person who died would expect to be eaten the people who were mourning couldn't really properly complete the mourning process until they'd eaten and yeah it was part of a whole web of religious uh, rites around the dead the violent cannibalism was also although it was practiced against another tribe it was hostile it was terroristic but but it was very very honorable uh, it followed a very controlled ritual pattern and you were kind of doing honor to your victim because you were believing that they had the courage to survive your full ordeals you put them through but also that their body, their heart, the strength of their spirit was worth eating, as it were. 
So there was a lot more kind of seriousness and religion and honor in these things. In terms of actually practicing medicinal cannibalism in the new world, um, there wasn't nearly so much as you would get in the old world. But once I started looking into some of the details around blood drinking for the new edition, I found some pretty startling stories. And these were based on the practice of drinking blood uh, fresh hot at uh, shambles slaughterhouses in uh, Paris, in New York, in various parts of America. And the patients who were drinking this particularly seemed to have been women. So you can see some logic, um, female physiology, that women are low on iron certain times of the month and so on but also in an era which was again very sexist and which people were obsessed with meat any meat in a poor family would go to the quote head of the household uh, the the uh, husband father and so drinking blood you paid a small amount of money for it at the slaughterhouse was an effectual way for women to get a kind of cheap uh, protein if you like and this, this went on a very ordered way uh, in Paris and in America in the late 19th centuries. But what happened in a few cases at least, and we don't really know the possible details of what was wrong with these, these women if they had particular medical conditions, but we know that consumption was rife in, in Eastern America at that time. Um, they would drink animal blood, but they would progress in a very few cases to drinking human blood. And there were some lovely romantic vignettes in which they drank the blood of their husbands or lovers. Uh, and this sometimes got out of hand um, and led to some pretty sticky situations uh, where you did seem to be looking at outright blood lust. Beyond this, however, the one which really left me reeling, and I thought I'd seen everything by this stage, was a case in Kansas in, I think it was the 1870s, but well into the 19th century, when a man uh, wrote a letter to the city authorities saying they needed to go and investigate uh, one of the citizens living just off the city limits by the Blue River called John Wrinkle. Uh, they must go and investigate this man because he had formed a sect called the Samaritans, which in its own way, very religious, said that the Bible told you to help people in need. And that one important way of helping people in need who were sick was to give them your blood to drink. So this sect, a very Christian affair, seemed to have been, and white by the way, um, seemed to have been drinking blood for some time when this urgent letter got to the city authorities. The authorities went to the house of John Wrinkle, uh, where they asked the children, because this was a claim in the letter, has your father been drinking your blood? Quite young girl and boy. The children dutifully said no. The um, official said, right, let's have a look at you. Found appalling scars uh, on the inside of their arms. Uh, it was revealed that he had indeed been drinking their blood and was severely uh, emaciated because of it. So, yeah, along with your murders for human fats in Europe, you had some pretty uh, sticky things going on in uh, civilized North America. And I just recommend actually on this note, um, if anyone hasn't read it already, one of the books I found invaluable for a lot of research is a thing called Food for the Dead. Uh, and this is folklorist Michael Bell talking about incredible uh, superstitions and uh, practices with the dead. Basically this book is about a form of American vampirism that people uh, used vampire beliefs as a scapegoat for consumption which killed 
heartbreaking numbers of people might kill 13 people in one family. And this was because the first person who died of consumption was feeding on you from their grave. And um, we, we have unforgettable scenes from this book where uh, people on Woodstock Green um, are burning uh, a human heart, uh, you know, sober sort of collection of people who much, might look much like Abraham Lincoln from a distance, um, are standing around this human heart being burned. Uh, they sprinkle Bullock's blood on it and they bury it full fathom five under a great rock. Um, this isn't the version of um, civilized white supreme America that uh, I believe is retailed in many, many schools at the moment or that would be uh, congenial to Mr. Trump. But it was happening and uh, Food for the Dead reveals that although vampires probably didn't drink people's blood, uh, people did drink the blood uh, of vampires and they drank their ashes in water as a cure uh, in the late 19th century. <laughs> so did you run into any sort of resistance? I mean you mentioned earlier that someone wanted you to leave the word cannibalism out but did you have any sort of more serious resistance to the writing and publication of this book? I didn't really in this case. I did have a, um, a black minister in America. I had a, a radio interview about five, six years ago, uh, say to me, he'd read the book six or seven times to my amazement, and he asked me, have you had death threats? Uh, so he saw it that way. I'm happy to say I, I haven't. Um, working with one or two publishers is worse than having death threats. But um, no, the book I've had, or the, rather the research I've had more of that kind of problem with, uh, really is ghosts and poltergeists. And this really uh, splits up your academic colleagues some of them that you've known for 12, seven years uh, will say to you, only when you raise the subject of ghosts and poltergeists, that, yep, this has happened to me. Uh, and in one case, it was extremely traumatic. In fact, the most traumatic thing in their life uh, at the age of 40 odd. And then I've had others who, yeah, you can kind of tell by the way they're not listening to you, that they're waiting for you to stop and looking at their shoes, thinking you're mad. Uh, but yeah, when you realise that there's a strange secret hiding in plain sight uh, about which people are embarrassed to talk, you you become aware we've created a new taboo in an age when we we see ourselves as pretty good at challenging taboos around sexuality, around abuse, uh, and professionally more and more around race now. It's taken too long, but it's happening. But with uh, this question of uh, ghosts and poltergeists, you, you get a surprising lot of it's not entirely surprising because it, it made my head hurt, but when people's head is made to hurt like this and when their very set views are thrown into confusion, uh, they laugh or they get angry. Both of these are irrational responses. Uh, so they'll laugh at you, they'll get angry at you. I, I don't blame them because I got angry reading this stuff. Um, I, I laughed reading it, I suppose. But when I read enough and I heard enough of the same thing across 2000 years, I thought it really needs looking into um, lawyers, politicians, um, Cambridge Dons, you name it, anybody you like will speak up about this if you ask them the right way. So yeah, this is something that's waiting to be studied and it does feel a little bit rum when you're treated as though you're a sort of slightly touched lunatic by people who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and that it's perfectly fine and normal to eat his body and drink his blood every Sunday. You know, this is ordinary madness, but um, madness that's kind of on the fringes which really is probably the most important question you can ever face. What happens to your consciousness when you die? Uh, this madness, yeah, has become a kind of strange new taboo for, I think, for um, 
you know, educated elites in certain parts of the world, not everywhere. And yeah, supposedly primitive societies actually probably know much better about this and also are much better at dealing with it. If you're, if you have the worst thing that's ever happened to you occur in Britain, uh, in Glasgow, as it did a few summers ago, and was witnessed by the police who were really uh, open mouthed in this house when they saw what was going on uh, at the hands of a poltergeist. If this worst thing that's ever happened to you happens, be prepared for everyone to abuse you roundly and soundly in the age of social media, whereas in developing countries, they would offer you a community understanding uh, and possible means of combating it. Uh, here you'll get trolled, unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, just taking a, s a small diversion, unless I'm yeah. wrong, I think you're also doing research in, into fairies? That's right. Yeah, well, funnily enough, uh, in my vampire book, The Real Vampires, and in Fairies, A Dangerous History, I came across poltergeist behaviour, poltergeist phenomena and reports. This was what first got me onto the subject. I had no interest in it most of my life as an atheist, uh, and I, I don't have any Christian interest in it. But yeah, fairies, vampires uh, were labels that people put on poltergeists at certain times. Fairies is the most interesting one, really, because your poltergeist is not that well known, but you do have a friendly kind of benign poltergeist reported across hundreds of years, across every continent, by every type of person. And this poltergeist does things for you. It does your housework, it tidies up, uh, it arranges things, it makes little tableau, it um, leaves you presents, it drops you things that you might actually want or need from bottles of brandy, through sweets, through flowers. Uh, so the old kind of myths about uh, appeasing the fairies or pleasing them, leaving out bread and milk for them at night to feed them and so forth, respecting them, talking about them respectfully. They would do your chores for you at night. Well, yeah, it, it's hard to believe, but poltergeists reportedly do this. So fairies uh, also can get very angry. And in Ireland, well into the 20th century, there were many houses where you could see a corner sliced off the building by a mason because the house had reportedly been interfering with a fairy path. And you don't do this lightly in Ireland. You'll find out that you've got poltergeist phenomena, things thrown around in the house, sheets pulled off the bed, hammering noises that you can't source. We're talking about detached house here. And yeah, you would pay a mason to slice the corner off the house and uh, free up the fairy path and, and things would then go back to normal. Now, what's interesting about poltergeist is that there's a very, very strong uh, element. And Keith Linder, um, who's a American victim of poltergeist for the last uh, seven years in Seattle, will tell you this. The more stressed you get, the more upset you get, the more frightened you get, and there's good reason for that in circumstances. Uh, the worse the phenomenon will get. So it feeds on your stress, your terror, your negative energy. And so if you were in a kind of fairy community where everybody believed what you're saying about angry fairies and you thought you'd done something to solve the problem, funnily enough, kind of placebo effect, you might call it, you had solved the problem because you calmed down enough and it, it, it went away. So yeah, fairies, uh, were very interesting and they offered you this duality of the friendly fairy, the helpful one, uh, the angry one, the destructive one, and both of those are found in, in the case of poltergeists. It's incredible that you have this uh, really wide range of interests but uh, in your research, but actually they're quite connected in some ways. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's often asked, how did you get to the subject? You're not quite sure, but I do find that if you 
do a worthwhile book, you do tend to um, heap up a, a load of material from the research mine once you look at it from a different of another book. And this has happened to me quite a bit. And in fact, from the uh, sections on the very filthy, disgusting uh, medicine of the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, I, uh, I came up with a new book that I'm just completing. And uh, any agents listening, please get in touch with me. Uh, it's a long book, but it's tremendous, disgusting fun. It's Talking Dirty, The History of Disgust from Jesus Christ to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is deserved a chapter to himself. Um, and yeah, um, Shakespeare had a colossal vocabulary, as we know, but he never once used the word disgust. It was very new in his time, but a hundred odd years after Shakespeare, um, in fact, um, until about 1750, people didn't really have our modern hygienic sense of disgust, which now seems absolutely indispensable to us uh, in moral terms, in visceral terms. Of course, it's a very powerful thing in the moment when people are constantly spraying everything that comes their way yeah. for understandable reasons. But there is evidence that before the whole crisis of COVID-19, people were steadily and persistently in privileged, privileged societies, especially getting more easily disgusted or if you like looking for something new to be disgusted by. So smoking has been a huge one in uh, parts of Europe, but particularly North America. And, um, you know, people who would happily drive hundreds of miles in some great SUV are busy abusing smokers about puffing a little bit of smoke nowhere near them because they're not allowed to anymore. Uh, Hygiene, unfortunately, um, the degree of bombardment that children have been subjected to by wet wipes and sprays and over sanitation, as well as the fact they live in cities and very sealed environments, has damaged their immune systems. This is well uh, recorded by biologist Ed Yong, terrific book where I contain multitudes about how most bacteria is not bad for you, but is essentially necessary for you. Without it, the world would, would collapse. So, yeah, history of disgust has been a tremendous roller coaster ride through medicine, through politics, uh, through the um, visceral kind of politics of disgust used against the quote, great unwashed. It seems like a kind of eternal phrase, but actually it arose only around the early 19th century to stop Britain's getting the vote. It's a short way of putting that. So, yeah, that's the new one that's, that's come out of the cannibal research. That's brilliant. And uh, so in terms of your future research, do you find that there's still a lot more out there to, to investigate in terms of um, like corpse medicine? Um, I think I will find more in terms of corpse medicine. Um, I'm not in a hurry to do a fourth edition. If, if I get asked for it, I will do it eventually. I've got so much more I want to do. I, I do write some fiction. I'm busy writing. You have to make atonement for your sins, really, with the family when you do such appalling research. So write some children's stories to make up for it. Uh, but, yeah, I very much want to do a mainstream book on ghosts and poltergeists. This is waiting to be done. It's never really been done. Uh, when it's done, people will suddenly tap each other on the shoulder and say, hey, this has happened to me. Do you know? And your closest friends will be telling you uh, the most traumatic thing in their life that they didn't dare tell you uh, until now. Uh, disgust. I can see myself doing a much longer, bigger edition of it uh, if it's popular enough. Unfortunately, it's already 130,000 words. But um, yeah, I think broadly in terms of research beyond corpse medicine, what I love about history is that it never ends that um you're always finding more stories and sometimes you can stumble on just one story in one place that really makes your jaw drop that really makes your spine tingle and um 
there's no end to this kind of great web of stories that bounces us from one to another and that offers us these some um, these living kind of pictures of particularly ordinary people really the the voiceless majority who are kept out of history but in recent years have been given much more space and i hope will be given even more space in terms of um, the uh, people who suffered at the hands of men like Colston uh, and all this kind and rather than just you know raising up great monuments to Colston and co let's try and unearth those stories and the reality of those stories for film for books uh, for interviews and, and just we must never top, stop telling those stories we have a responsibility to the dead I think. Yes, brilliant. Um, so lastly, just just a small technical question in terms of your the newest edition of of Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires. Um, where can we find it? Where can readers get hold of it? Yes, at the moment you can get it just on Amazon as a Kindle. Uh, I don't particularly like Kindle myself, uh, and I'm very sympathetic with people of my age or temperament who want a paper copy. I have to say. Um, it's been made a little more difficult now for one to produce a paper copy. And I've had tremendous help on this from um, somebody who's probably not paid enough for the job uh, on Amazon's call line. And I, I hope I'll get that help again soon. Um, and once I can crack this, I do hope to be turning out a lot of much cheaper books in paper copy as well as, as well as hard copy. But yeah, if anyone wants to read it, if they enjoy it, please do leave a review and um, it helps me shortcut the, the big publishers a little bit and get their books out affordably. That's said, this has been really an amazing talk. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so Thank much you. for talking about this and being on, on Legendary Africa. Many thanks. I hope we can come back and I can come back and talk about uh, discussed ghosts, poltergeists and, and anything more at some point. But thanks, a really interesting conversation. Thanks. No, certainly. I would, I would love to have you back on again for any future books. Great. Good. A very warm thank you to Dr. Sugg for that brilliant interview. Remember to check out the new edition of his book, Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Middle Ages to the Falun Gong. Also, if you love this podcast, show it. Subscribe, rate and review. Also get in touch with us via Twitter at LegendaryPod1, Instagram at LegendaryPod, or email us at staylegendarypod at gmail.com. And remember, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary.